the outbreak of World War I. The champ Earl Caddick enlists, and the top contenders are drafted. What happened when Jack Curley tried to take over wrestling? Listen and find out. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swords. Pearl as a lane, history nerds. You did it again. You listened to a show. I guess you're starting to listen to a show. Future tense, present tense, not past tense. What am I talking about? Who am I? What is even happening? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, but more importantly for what we're doing today, I'm a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here, as always, with the Leonard Nimoy Omnicron to my Orson Welles Omnicron. It's Chongo Bronson. How the fuck are you, man? Dude, I am blown away by that reference. That was fantastic. I am taken back to both the times I cried from the original Transformer movies. And I am capital. Hello, nerds! And speaking of crying speaking of things that traumatize us we are going to be exploring some crazy stories today as we continue our story of that weird time in pro wrestling after the gotch hackenschmidt era we've discussed cutler we've discussed pesic we've discussed stetcher we're discussing ed lewis and we're going to be kind of starting to combine all these stories and discussing how the careers of joe stetcher Ed Lewis, Earl Caddick, Vladed Zabisco, all start intertwining much deeper, much more meaningfully uh, as they uh, as as we march through the years 1917 and 1918 and 1919. And before we get into it, because I'm just dying to get into these stories, I just want to point out that once again we are putting together the best narrative we can from the information that's available. You know, biographies, old news articles, secondhand stories from other people's biographies or autobiographies. There were no shoot interviews back then, so if you say, hey, I heard from this guy that this happened or this happened because of this, and it's different from what you're saying, you gosh darn silly geese, well, I just say, cool, somebody probably did tell that story that way and truly believed it in their heart, or maybe they were right, maybe we're wrong. Once again, these stories become subjective based on the narratives of the people who live to tell the tale. It's like the thing we always reference where Hackenschmidt outlived Gotch, so he got to tell the story of that match many more times than Gotch ever did. Everything's subjective. Everybody has an agenda. Every telling of a story will be different. It's the Rochamon effect over and over and over again. And it's professional wrestling, man. This is a oral tradition passed down from carny generation to carny generation. And if you're not exaggerating on the grandiose details, if you don't put a few inches on the fish, darling, then what's the point of casting the hook? And we're going to pick up where we left off last time in April of 1917, because something important, not just in wrestling, but in world history that shapes things to this day, on April 6th, 1917, the Congress of the United States of America declared war on Germany, World War I was upon us, and the Selective Service Act required men 21 to 30 to register for military service. And this would affect not just the pro wrestling industry again, but every aspect of life. The world champion, Earl Caddick, the man of a thousand holds, he signed up immediately, but was immediately rejected for medical reasons. He had an infection from a tonsil surgery being the primary issue. So he went out and he got a second surgery and enlisted and was sent to Camp Dodge in Iowa for training. You can imagine what this had, uh, what kind of impact this had on the wrestling scene. Yeah, what a badass, first of all. He got a ticket to get out of there because he had the good fortune of having good timing with a bad illness. And then he got it cleared up and went back in there. That's a fighter, man. He's trying to, you know, the old school brother. And Ed Lewis and Joe Stetcher, they lacked Caddick's patriotic fervor, if you will, and wouldn't enlist until 1918. And this put the wrestling world into chaos, where the top guys could at any moment be sent to the brutal killing fields of France. Another important thing that happened in April? Well, according to the Grand Forks Herald, April 5th, 1917, John Olin beat the masked marvel. I was just glad to see Mort Henderson still cashing in with the gimmick. 
Yeah, I just like to think that the Mass Marvel was also the first guy that ever had entrance music, even though that probably wasn't a thing. Like, I could see, like, the big bands playing do, 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 Mass Marvel do. <laughs> yeah, so, well, throwback to the 1915 tournament aside, kind of moving forward in 1917. In October 1917, Ed Lewis was supposed to wrestle Vladik Zabisco yet again in Houston, Promoter Frankie Edwards had ambitions to turn Texas into a wrestling hotspot in conjunction with Chicago promoter Joe Coffey. He paid decent money up front for transportation. Lewis and Sandow arrived down there in that city. But two days before the November 1st showdown, Charlie Cutler arrived as Zabisco's replacement without any notice because Vladek had been drafted into an artillery unit and couldn't get a leave from his station in Massachusetts. So, you have this big match, you have everything advertised, and then a different guy shows up who's not on the poster. If that's not wrestling, I don't know what is. Cards subject to change, especially when it's due to war. And Vladek was a big star. Cutler in that area, not so much. So requests for refunds came pouring in, wrecking the pre-sale numbers that made Frankie Edwards think he was on pace to break attendance records in Houston. By showtime, Edwards didn't even have enough to cover Lewis and Sandow's guarantees, who refused to take one penny less. So Edwards did what any good promoter would do, gave up and snuck out the back. <laughs> <laughs> yes! That's amazing. That is the best finish for that possible outcome because, yeah, he's in a bad spot, man. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in the Texas fan base for not supporting the troops. So, yeah, so just... And this is not... Something that died out back then. This is still a problem with indie promoters to this day, where somebody has a big match, a big star, big dreams of being a big-time wrestling promoter, and then when it comes to count the pennies, there are not enough to go around, and you sneak out the back, you go missing, you fake a heart attack, and they call an ambulance, and you sneak out the back of the hospital. The options are limitless, just as there are tales about that type of bullshit. Oh, yeah, and I would say this is a situation that definitely warrants it because the last thing you want is a bunch of Texans pissed off trying to trying to gather gather together to get their money back in the parking lot after a show. That is no bueno. And with no promoter to say it's showtime, the crowd stayed for a few hours before realizing it just wasn't going to be happening and demanded refunds. Oh, wait, wait, wait. He, he stuck out like at the beginning of the show and just left it on pause? Yep, he realized this was not going to go well. He looked at the house <laughs> and just pieced the fuck out. What? So uh, the audience, is? yeah, they go up to the gate saying, hey, man, we want our money back. And they're like, I don't even know what to tell you, brother. So somebody, of course, called the cops. The police picked him up on the way to his hotel and demanded that he uh, you know processed those refunds so he gave a hard luck excuse when pressed by the police claiming he couldn't give full refunds at the moment after the building rental advances and the war tax billy sandow said in an interview later any week i can't make a thousand dollars with lewis is a poor week when edward said he couldn't have a thousand dollars in the house we simply refused to go on what is a guarantee worth otherwise what an absolute gold spinner this man's mouth is the golden goose egg layer. This guy, Sandow, is definitely the top head on Chongo's Mount Rushmore of all-time carny spinsters. Because as you might remember from last time, Billy Sandow came on board as Ed Lewis's manager, and what a manager he was. You gave this guy five minutes with the press, he was going to make national headlines. They were perfect for each other. And if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should go back, maybe start with the 1915 tournament episode and work your way up to this so you really appreciate the, the breadth of this story. November 29th, 1917, he had his first match against Jim Londos. Lewis won, but looked terrible in the effort. Londos looked like the better wrestler and even stopped to let Lewis tie his shoes. What a gentleman. When Londos needed to do the same, Lewis jumped him and cranked a headlock on the Greek grappler. The dirty move kept Longos hot, and the crafty Lewis a heel even amongst heels. So what a perfect little little exchange at the time. Oh, I'll be a gentleman and let you tie your shoes. But when you need that favor returned, it's dirty wrestling time, brother. Dude, I smell a sando. I mean, plain and simple. We are we are seeing the genesis of causal effect cause and effect and growth based on response of heel shit 
being developed in real time, people. This is one of the first examples of like, that's a classic heel spot, a proto heel spot right there. And it, brilliant, brilliant work. Oh, and these guys were so ahead of their time, man. Yes, yeah, so this was a time when you really started seeing that Sandow-infused showbiz type of BS get, in, get put into these matches, where there is no athletic exertion required in jumping a guy while he's tying his shoes, but that crowd is going to want to kill you dead. And even better, they want to pay to see someone else do it in the rematch, which will be next Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Oh, Sandow. Before any such rematch could even be thought of, we had to deal with Earl Caddick. Because Earl Caddick was set to enter the army by late December, Jack Curley, of course, decided to host a tournament at the Lexington Theater in New York City, hoping to crown a replacement champion. Caddick was involved, and Caddick won his first two matches, including a barn burner with Roller, before being inducted into the army. According to biographer Steve Yohei, he thinks that Caddick was booked to job to Zabisco, who was managed by Curly and free from military obligations due to his cauliflower ears. Yohei posits that Caddick's manager, Gene Melody, didn't approve of the deal for the title switch and pulled Caddick from the tournament, even though the army most likely would have let him finish it. Well, first of all, that's a lot of smart talk for the papers back in the day. Second of all, Curly... This man, I mean, just the opposite of Sandow, the worst carny, carny in the bad sense of the term. And, and uh, I will say this, though, to get out of military service due to cauliflower ear, that is pretty cool. I wonder if I can get away with that now. Yeah, I, I assume it was, it, he could hear just fine, but just didn't want to listen. Yes, that, you know, that affliction affects many great champions, yeah, yes. You, you get your cauliflower ear caught on the barbed wire crawling under the trenches, you know, it could be a real issue. Totally, yes. That's what happens these days. Yes, yes. It's like Charlie had to stand down. Wait, what did you say? I didn't hear you. I couldn't hear you over the collie. In a crazy tournament finish on December 22nd, Lewis was forced to wrestle with the handicap of his headlock being banned against fellow finalist Vladik Zabisco, as he had used it brutally in his tournament match against the Polish wrestler just a few days earlier. The match ended with Sandow starting an argument with a wrestler in Zabisco's corner, and while Lewis watched this fight unfold, Zabisco snuck on, up on him and pinned him with a body scissor and body hold. Sounds like a very legitimate win to me. Yes, yes, but it smells a little different than that to me, old chap. What is, is it? Could be, it could be. What is the word for it? Oh, a hippodrome! Yes, but, yes. But these are becoming the showbiz pro wrestling moves that you still see today. You know, this is no different than a match is happening, somebody's music hits, the baby face goes to yell at them, and it's a schoolboy roll-up for the one, two, three. There is no difference stylistically, logistically, or emotionally than what you got right there because all it did was make Lewis look like an idiot, not a bad wrestler. It made the whole thing very hot, a very emotional response, I'm sure. And... Vladek was awarded a title belt by the New York Athletic Commission and declared the world champion. So he was seen as the world champion by the Athletic Commission, which was a big deal as Curly was trying to consolidate so many matches into that city. There was no mention of Lewis's Olin lineage title being at stake, so he continued to claim it to be the real championship. Uh, if you remember from last episode, John Olin beat Stetcher almost by accident. And nobody really thought to say, oh, this guy's the, the champion until months down the road, and then Lewis beat him. There was just so many weird twists and turns of who was the champion at this time, and that was just one of them. Also around this time, the sporting press was questioning whether or not Lewis's headlock was too dangerous to be allowed, since it functioned as a stranglehold due to neck compression. The December 19th West Virginian had an article titled Strangler Lewis Camouflages Stranglehold with Headlock and Lewis's head hold caused wild scenes in New York City wrestling tournaments from the Wilmington Evening Journal on December 21st or my favorite, the New York Sun on December 23rd with article Modern Wrestlers Use Brutal Holds which also runs down the dangerous holds used by men like Gotch and Lewis the author also took shots at the legacy of Evan Strangler Lewis, quote, 
The original Strangler, Ed Lewis, good job editor, got the name wrong right there, had little to commend him as a wrestler except the fact that he took advantage of any rule barring the stranglehold, and that he won a number of matches by choking his opponents. In the end, Lewis was hoist with his own petard for Yusuf, the Turk gave the Chicagoan a bitter dose of his own medicine, applying the stranglehold to the strangler and leaving him in serious condition. So we're already seeing the, the press that Sandow was doing with like the training head and showing off and then good finishes with it. So the press is now picking up and running with the story of this hold being so dangerous that maybe it shouldn't even be allowed, which only makes it hotter to see. Yes, because if you missed the last two-parter on the second Strangler, then you missed the fact that Sando had the brilliant carny idea of creating basically an owl snow head with like, what was it, a, like a railroad spring? Yeah, it was, it was two halves of a wooden head held together with railroad springs, so Lewis in the press would squeeze it together to show how strong his headlock was and how dangerous it could be. So now... Clearly they had to ban it, man. Of oh, course, yeah, they're so, just doing their due diligence as a proper athletic commission. Yeah, so there was starting to be a little bit of an outcry that maybe, maybe this man was too dangerous to be allowed to wrestle with all his tools. Scandal. And while this craziness was playing out, Earl Caddick was miserable enough in the army. The Lincoln Daily Star on December 24th had an article, Army Life No Snap for Wrestler Caddick, practically shitting on him for his new life of being in charge of the officer's horses on the base he was stationed at. Quote, Earl Caddick, champion heavyweight wrestler of the world, tested out several of his thousand holds at Camp Dodge Saturday, wrestling with, with recalcitrant mules and stubborn pitchforks, end quote. <laughs> Damn, bury him. That was yeah. a very sophisticated way to say he's just grappling asses, too. Yeah, what a fun way to, like, I mean, you would think, like, all the papers would be so patriotic. Yeah! They're just like, look at this asshole. He was a champion wrestler. Now he's, like, fucking pitchfork king in the shit, in the shit barn. <laughs> Dude, I bet when he finally got a hold of somebody on the field, it was a full water boy moment. Where he was like, <laughs> he's like, I love my mama. I didn't talk about your mama. He's like, come here, Strangler. <laughs> and taking a half step back about the headlock being banned in the Lewis Zabisco tournament final, a lot of people say it was banned, but some claim it was a gentleman's agreement, and some, like the December 24th Grand Forks Herald, claimed that he received a $1,000 bonus to not use it, which you would never see in modern sports, combat sports. There would never be in the 2000s an MMA organization that would offer fighters extra money if they left certain tools at the door when they uh, stepped into the ring. I mean, nobody in Japan would ever, <laughs> would ever offer a fighter extra money to... Uh, to, to not do some things during a fight. Pride! Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, they just... I had a little... Uh, fighters just have too much pride to do that. They yes. just have too much pride to ever think, to say, okay, if I get this amount of money to not throw punches with the grappler that's a big star, fine, fine. They would never do that too much pride. Yes, especially in the early 2000s. <laughs> in Japan. On January 1st, 19... 18, Lewis had a rematch with Jim Londos, going to a two-hour and a half draw, with Londos looking like a million bucks until the last half hour, with Lewis wearing him down with a headlock before time ran out. This made Londos look like a top contender without anyone taking a loss. So again, you build the new guy up to make him look like a star, but then he fades towards the tail end and Lewis takes over and maintains his dominance, but in the end, Nobody loses, nobody really wins, but everybody now still looks as dangerous and as sharp as they did before the bell rang. That's right. No, and I disagree, old chap. Sandow always wins. <laughs> that he does. To no one's surprise, the Army gave Earl Caddick a pass to continue his wrestling career while being stationed in Fort Dodge, coaching Army sports and teaching bayonet fighting. I wish I knew what skills he had to earn that spot. And there was a massive struggle to win the location of a title unification match between Zabisco and Caddick as Jack Curley, Omaha's Gene Malady, and Des Moines' Oscar Thorsten fought it out. In the end, Des Moines was the place and February 8th was the date. Billy Sandow, of course, took to the press to decry the matchup, claiming Lewis to be the real champ and the best man on the mat 
claiming it was all politics and perception of the Stetcher matches that kept Lewis out of the picture. <laughs> oh, Billy. That just makes my... just I'm titillated in the carny senses right now. I, he's one of those guys that just never missed a moment to center everything on Ed Lewis. There could be the biggest match over here, and he's going to say, this is bullshit, these guys are assholes, Lewis could beat them both on his on his worst day. Can you believe they're even letting this happen? Makes me wonder what some of those guys from back in the day, like uh, what if a young Stanislaw Zabisco had had a manager like this? It might have been him in there with uh, Gotch in Chicago. Who knows? But he was doing his job, gosh darn it. Verbal Carl Parisian. In the title unification match, Caddick won in two and a half hours of wrestling. He took the first fall in an hour and 20 minutes with his leg scissors and wrist lock combo. In the second, the Polish wrestler, who weighed 45 pounds more than his opponent, picked him up while in a leg scissor and slammed him to the canvas while Caddick was on his back. It was the right position for a pin at the 31 minute mark. The third fall saw Caddick out-wrestling Vladek before time ran out. Caddick won the decision on points, but was appearing to be injured and might not have lasted long if the time hadn't run out. Almost like they planned it that way. Almost like they wanted to keep Vladek looking strong, but Caddick a winner. It's almost like it's a, uh, what's the word? Oh, Hippodrome! Yes, yes. It seems to be a theme these days. And on the same day, Jack Curley put together a meeting that would change the industry. On hand were promoters like Gene Malady, Oscar Thorsten, Carl Marfigi, Otto Flodo, and sports newspapermen like Ed Smith and Sandy Griswold. Curley proposed universal rules to standardize wrestling in the United States, much like boxing, suggesting time limits being the same everywhere, decisions being treated like true victories, and all matches being scheduled for one fall. Curley was still a boxing man at heart and saw the path to wrestling success and illegitimate legitimacy through standardizing the rules coast-to-coast, border-to-border. So I, I wonder how much of this... Because in my mind, the ultimate chess player on the table right now is Sandow. So anything this monumental... If he's not the front man, how is he not the string puller? Because I guarantee Curly's not out foxing the man here. No, they were very much in business together. Cahoots, you say? Because Curly was the he was the general. He was the the perfect guy to like see the big picture and make everything work on a business level across the board. Sandow was just the perfect guy to mouth off and get what he wanted, get all the attention, get things in the press rolling, get everybody talking, get everybody hot. Sometimes those skills overlap, and I'm sure they did to a certain amount, but they also complemented each other greatly. Dude, it sounds like you're talking about us. That's awesome. Why aren't we as good as these guys? This is Okay, we have to take more notes. I might actually have to write something down here. Soon after this, Curly would sign an agreement with the Stesher brothers to form a trust with the goal of taking the big matches out of the Midwest Farm Festivals and sending them to New York City, which was under control of Jack Curley. I can't imagine Gene, Gene Malady of Omaha being okay with this, but with Caddick slated to be sent to Europe by the Army, he was about to lose his only leverage point in the argument. And Joe Stetcher had recently returned to wrestling during the last quarter of 1917, and, starting in January of 1918, was working for Curley in Madison Square Garden in front of sellout crowds, including March 1st with a two-hour draw with Vladek Zabisco. Sandow and Lewis, of course, talked plenty of shit to the press, claiming Caddick and Stetcher were ducking him, but soon enough both Zabisco and Stetcher matches materialized after Sandow made a deal with Curley. So now we have Curley with Sandow, with Lewis, with the Stesher brothers, all working together to bring all the big matches and all the big opportunities and paydays to Madison Square Garden, to New York, out of those farm festivals where the big matches had traditionally been. This is like if the Avengers had been carnies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And instead of star-stopping an alien invasion, they just wanted to take the marks for a full house. <laughs> Dude, this is, this is shaping up to be some wild shit. 
On March 19th, 1918, Ed Lewis versus Vladik Zabisco at Madison Square Garden. Zabisco repeatedly fouled Lewis, who in turn kept catching Vladik in a headlock and cranking it. The match ended with Vladik headbutting Lewis and the Strangler falling out of the ring. Ed Lewis was declared winner via disqualification, and the crowd rioted, because of course they did. Trying to get at Zabisco, who suffered a cut on the head after being struck by an audience member's cane, no matter how he came by it, the win gave Lewis another shot at Stetcher. Good shit. That is such a... This is what I'm talking about, man. Like we said, we are, we are off to the races. We get these we get these maniacs together and chaos ensues. I know a lot like a I wish there was a biography or an autobiography about like the cleaning team at Madison Square Gardens where every night they come out and the place is just wrecked to shit because somebody pulled a crazy swerve and the crowd tore the place to fucking pieces. Just like they come out with their their big you know push broom like here we go again. It's like some you know Mary Poppins musical <laughs> and start cleaning up all the wooden teeth on the floor. So with that match set between Lewis and Stetcher, it took place on April 26th and ended in a two-hour draw. The match seemed to have been high-paced, with each man countering the other in a non-stop game of physical chess, and the fans back in Omaha, however, were rather grouchy about the location of the match being in New York, since Stetcher promised to never wrestle Lewis anywhere else because of the, you know, the bullshit swerves and weird draws and decisions that weren't real happening back in that city. But because of the Curly Agreement and the tide of the sport being pushed big matches out of the Midwest, there wasn't much to be done about it. <laughs> you know, the, I can just imagine the pitch meeting when they were talking about moving all the big matches out out to the East Coast. It's like a Pace Picante commercial. New York City! He had a rope. <laughs> the Nebraska boys were pissed. But I can't believe a professional wrestler was disingenuous to an audience about future plans. I know. I'm shocked as well and a little disappointed. The day the business died. Vladik Zabisco then faced off against Earl Caddick for the title yet again on May 8th in Chicago. Caddick won a decision but couldn't finish the much larger wrestler. Opinion pieces legit talk shit about him not being able to pin guys who walked around 50 pounds heavier than him. It was very pro wrestling in real sports where you had Earl Caddick, who was a technical genius, but because he couldn't get clean wins over guys who were huge compared to him, they're like, oh, what a bum. And you also start seeing in this a lot more draws, a lot more decision wins, which kept everybody looking strong, but doesn't exactly make for the most thrilling of experiences as a ticket buyer, which did start having an effect, which we'll get to, but just something I wanted to point out because we will be hearing this a lot. I just want to say, man, if anybody needed the services of Sandow, it might have been Caddick because talk about getting just the worst, just getting buried every step of the way no matter what choice you make. Yeah, if you if you get the headlines, it does sometimes doesn't matter if you win in the match. Yeah, I mean, he's a, yes, but they are just coming after this poor, this poor chap just can't win in the papers, darling. I, I personally empathize. On the 10th of the same month, Ed Lewis got a win over Vladek and Louisville. Zabisco won the first fall in 1 hour 34 minutes with a double hammerlock. Lewis took the second in 35 minutes with a headlock and then cruised to a decision of being the aggressor for the remainder of the time. So Sandow now pitched a match between Lewis and Caddick, built on recent wins, and that Lewis had been drafted, and thus it might be now or never. John Pesek was also starting to nibble at their heels, but was neither a big enough star, nor had big enough representation at the time to get those giant matches. Though I did love the Omaha Bee's description on May 14th, stating, quote, now along comes Marty Slattery and Barney Lichtenstein, the Siamese twin combination handling the business affairs of John Pesek, when they were calling for a match against Stetcher, Lewis, or Caddick, but it would still be a year and a half before he got his first big match with Stetcher. Yes, shout out to the B, one of the true, true... Uh Top-notch publications of the era. Oh, God. I, every time I quote the Omaha Beat, you know you're going to get something sassy. I mean, they were so fucking sassy. 
between back in the day calling Evan Lewis fat as a prize pig when he was facing off against Martin Burns, or another one with Jack Hurley saying, and of course he's to be believed these, because he's a big city slicker. Just the sarcasm was just dripping from every page when they talked about wrestling. Oh, they were bitter. They're a bitter city like they just lost the franchise when the big show moved to New York. And with, speaking of big, with the big Lewis versus Caddick match arranged, there was much speculation on the outcome. The June 18th Des Moines Daily News claimed that in the article, Caddick has new hold to combat Strangler Lewis this Friday. Going over the odds and the history of the title claims, comparing it to when Jim Jeffries retired and presented Tommy Burns with his title without actually losing it, only for Tommy Burns to be beaten by Jack Johnson. Caddick claimed to have created a new hole to combat Lewis. Quote, Caddick, since the match was made, has been perfecting a counter for the hold and is said to have evolved a new grip, which he believes will prevent the strangler from using his famous hold. So we're just kind of coming up with uh, the perfect kung fu counter. It's like, oh, your crane style is no match for my tiger style. Yes, this is awesome. And this is how you build it, man. Yes, you have to fight the appropriate kung fu counter style, and they are tapping into that right now. On June 21st in Des Moines, Caddick put on a technical clinic, wrestling circles around the much bigger Lewis. The size and strength advantage were all Lewis, and that's all he had to keep from being finished. Caddick won the decision, with the ref no longer keeping points long before it was over because Caddick was so far ahead. Caddick could now claim the Olin Lineage Championship and was the undisputed heavyweight king. So this is, again, this is how you keep people looking strong, where you have the smaller wrestler winning the technical battle, while the bigger wrestler is simply too strong to be finished. So both guys win, even though somebody had to walk away technically the winner. And it's so funny because, as we have heard in the past, normally it was Strangler who was in that position. But now, because of the matchup, he's playing the big guy. He's playing the heavy, and he's, he's, he's basically giving the rub to his opponent and putting him in the smaller technical grappler position. And with that loss on the books, Lewis entered the Army in late July and was immediately promoted to sergeant and put in charge of physical training and athletics. Yes. Shocking. That's amazing. That, that's so badass. Just, they're like, all right. You're in charge now. Tell us how to fight. Sandow was also enlisted and taught hand-to-hand -hand combat and was sent to officer training, but the armistice was signed before he was commissioned. Sandow published books on self-defense, which he claimed were based on his time teaching soldiers how to fight, and you can still get those on Amazon today. Joe Stetcher ended up in the Navy and was stationed at the Great Lakes Center in Chicago. I don't think the German invasion of the Great Lakes was too much of a worry, but so long as he had fun. How long do you think it was before Sandow was thinking about getting a show booked overseas? <laughs> well, if he did, he would have had somebody over there because Earl Caddick was sent overseas and stationed at Herricourt, France, and took the title of champion with him. Far from actual danger, however, he was known to sneak off to the front lines on a motorcycle every now and then to see what was happening, and was eventually caught in a gas attack which left him very sick for several weeks. That's awesome. I mean, if you're going to, like, you know, get have a story about getting messed up and you're not allowed to be in the action, way to stick your nose in there, man. He reported to officer training where he was very miserable. It rained nonstop. He was treated badly by superiors who thought he was just there to look like a patriot instead of being a real soldier. The food was so bad that he spent lots of his own money to get better meals, and over 112,000 American men died in a very short time, half of which from diseases like the Spanish flu and typhoid fever. Really not a good place to be physically, mentally, or existentially. Well, at least he could buy his own food. I mean, I, I, I don't know how well that works against the notion that you're just there as sort of like this propped-up character. Yeah, I mean, he's in France, so he's just carb-loading on croissants. Yeah, totally, and he's probably paying way too much. <laughs> His division was set to invade Germany on November 12th, but the war ended the day before and put an end to that plan. Good for him, good for wrestling, good for lots of people. Lewis and Stetcher were discharged and ready to resume their full-time wrestling careers as the year came to an end. Lewis reportedly took December off due to an injury from military service. Meanwhile, Stetcher came out around 20 pounds heavier, all muscle, ready to hang with the bigger wrestlers. 
That's awesome. He was definitely putting in the work, using his time wisely. And and that is a, you know, shout out to Lewis, man, just to walk in there and be like, all right, I'm your coach now. That is fantastic. I wonder if all the, the recruits in basic training got squeezy heads. <laughs> yeah, well, I assume they, they were just like, because, I mean, you have to keep in mind, World War One training camps, you had so many just unsophisticated farm boys showing up who had never seen indoor plumbing and didn't know jack shit about anything other than wrestling a mule. So you put a guy like Ed Lewis, it's like, we're going to teach you guys how to wrestle, how to be fit, how to do all these things. So they had good uses for men like that. And, you know, maybe it's not so coincidental that we actually won that one because, well, you know, imagine if they sent, like, you know, I don't know, Brock Lesnar, and they're like, you're in charge of training all the troops now. Fools would be pumped! Hells to the yeah! <laughs> and then the wrestling world was turned upside down again when on February 21st, 1919, Earl Caddick was announced in the press as retiring from pro wrestling due to poor health. He had been hospitalized, reportedly with influenza, and had lost a considerable amount of weight. Jack Curley declared Vladek Zabisco the champion after his recent win over Stetcher because, of course, he would. Why wouldn't he? Yes, reasons, darling. Yes, this is pro wrestling. And on February 25th, 1919, in Sioux City, Stetcher, now a bulked up, uh, I don't know, maybe a middleweight. I, I, I don't know how they, they planned these things back then. But Stetcher took on Zabisco in what was advertised as a title match that could not end in a draw and ended in a two-hour draw. Yes! <laughs> At one point, Zabisco was lying face down with Stetcher unable to turn him, and Zabisco was winking at the crowd. The audience screamed insults, yelling, Fake! And at the end, the audience chased Zabisco, Stetcher, and Curly backstage, where they were held back by the police, who escorted these carnies to safety. A story we hear again and again and again. Well, there's, like, fixing the point spread, and then there's, like, fixing the outcome so that it's the one thing that people aren't allowed to bet on. Like, it can't end this way. Like, like, <laughs> and that's were, how it is. I, I just want there to be, like, a Scooby-Doo-style cartoon about these these fuckers where instead of solving mysteries, they're scamming towns, and they just have, like, their, their patented getaway music where it's like, get them, and they, yes. they run in place with just their legs spinning, and then the music starts, and they're being chased by the townies, like, up and down streets while the monkeys are playing. I don't know. This is just what I want. Just live in my head and make me happy. Dude, book it. I, I'd pay to see that. But matches like this and decisions like this killed Curly's boxing-like rule changes with crowds no longer wanting decision wins in matches because the big decision wins work well if you're setting up something the next week to a finish, but if it's just decision after decision after decision after decision, it pulls the conclusive energy out of it. So it's like if you're working a match... You know, if you're doing real matches, I'm sorry, if you're doing real fights, if you're doing shoots, yeah, you could have a bunch of five-round draws, but those are going to eventually kill the box office, and now they kill the pay-per-views. But if you are booking it to be works, yeah, you need conclusive emotional endings to get everybody one way or the other with a sense of resolution. Exactly right. It is uh, The game is emotional elicitation, and if we... You know, give them blue balls over and over again, and never let the audience get what they really want at the end of at the end of the tunnel. You're gonna you're gonna fizzle out and lose the people. So we started seeing rule changes, like in the March third Stetcher versus Lewis match, which was set for two out of three falls. But if no falls were made in the first ninety minutes, it would become a one fall match. A winner would be declared, or refunds would be issued, claimed the ads. So this is smart. This is smart because you set the gimmick, but with stipulations to make sure that no fuckery can take place, and you get the extra box office push because you say, if this happens, refunds. And then everybody knows they're not going to get fucked over because these carnies don't want to give up their, uh, their box office. Yeah, every once in a while you got to, you know, charge you to the game and give, you got to, you got to, Put a show out there that gives the people what you want. You, you got to play the longer game, you know? It's not about that one individual payday sometimes. So in front of 7,000 paying fans, the two men put on an action-packed, high-paced, and more importantly, entertaining match. At the two-hour mark, Stetcher went for his leg scissor, but Lewis got an arm inside and broke the hold. He backheel tripped Stetcher, and Ed secured a headlock on the way down. Stetcher tried to bridge, but it was no use. He was pinned, and Lewis was the winner. When discussing this match, 
biographer Steve Yohei in his great book about Ed Lewis pointed out how this typified Curly as a booker. Having taken control from the managers and wrestlers and the egos of both, he could keep all the top guys strong and deliver good matches that made big money without burning the audiences now. Yeah, it sounds like he's... They're all taking the next step subsequently based on the, the cause and effect with the audience developing this new style of sort of worked presentation. And they're figuring it out kind of as they go. But man, when they hit... Because these people are not smart to the business as we would think of today, even though they might know it's a work or whatever. And they are getting some major, major responses, both financially and emotionally. It's so cool. Stetcher, Zabisco, and Lewis worked main events against each other, with Zabisco maintaining the championship. The biggest was a match between Lewis and Zabisco on March 21st, 1919 at Madison Square Garden. It drew a sellout crowd with the promises of a refund if there wasn't a finish. Again, this is a new and great advertising uh, hook for the day. Lewis was on the attack for most of the match until both men were worn out and Vladek picked him up and slammed him so hard that he couldn't get up and was pinned at the one hour, 34 minute mark. Vladek now claimed the Olin title as well for some reason. So we now have these finishes which do keep the other guy looking strong. You know, the, the Stetcher one, it seemed like Lewis caught him in a weird transition after breaking a hold. This is one where, you know, they were both exhausted. It just happened to be one big slam, which, which sealed the deal. So we, we, we have these conclusive finishes, but nobody really walks away looking like a piece of trash. Yeah, and it's also very, you know, uh, hippodrome aromificating. The fact that it happened just after the 90-minute mark, once it became a single false scenario and the stipulation kicked into effect, that that was right when the go-home got iggied, as they say. But the plot thickens. On April 1st, Gene Malady claimed that the rumors of Earl Caddick retiring were false and that he would be returning from France soon and would defend his title. The real, real title. The title that matters. Yes, uh, April Fools! Caddick is back at it. <laughs> That's the headline. And around this time, Lewis announced his engagement to Dr. Ada Scott Morton, saying the wedding would take place after another big match against Vladik Zabisco. And on April 28th, Zabisco beat Lewis at Chicago under the rules of a two out of three falls, unless the first fall didn't happen within the first two hours. Then it would be a single fall. Zabisco used a body scissor to pin Lewis at two hours, 14 minutes. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious how these big matches is it was mostly three guys now just rotating wins losses you know between chicago new york and a couple other big cities and you would think from how we watch wrestling today that this would burn everybody out but keep in mind you're reading about it in the press you're seeing it in person even though they're wrestling every weekend against each other in a basic combination there's a lot more emotional involvement because, again, they, they were just reading about it in the papers. They didn't have television. They didn't have radio. They didn't have a whole lot to focus on, especially now that the war was over. So it was easier to become emotionally involved in the abstract of this constant rematching. Yeah, and I think maybe as a fan at the time, you're looking at it like this is this epic, long, drawn-out chess game between these guys and I want to be there the night the definitive blow is struck. And that's how they were able to continue pushing this thing with so few pieces. Exactly. Lewis, he married Ada that May on the same day that her divorce from her ex was officially finalized. She was a highly trained, educated, and practicing physician who traveled to England and France for clinics. She owned a large estate by San Jose and built Lewis a large gym to train at, including a ringside piano because she believed training should be done to music, and I think that Thai boxers might agree. Wow, I think that he found like his Morticia Adams. And I'm just curious like what type of music she was playing. Was it like a high-paced ragtime thing? Was it like Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, some Chopin. I, yes. I'm just very curious the tone that was being set with this and how that affected the rhythm of his training. Yeah, it was totally a, a thing where he's like, yeah, play Cat Tail Races. And she's like, Chopin, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Doc Holliday. Friday, May 9th, 1919. 
Vladik Zabisco was set to defend his title against Joe Stetcher the night before the Kentucky Derby in Louisville at Jefferson County Armory. According to the Indianapolis Star on May 5th, Zabisco weighed 20 pounds more than Stetcher, even at his post-war bulked frame. Media lauded the military duty of both men during the war and claimed hotel reservations were running out due to interest in the match. The rules were catch-as-catch-can, with it being a one-fall match. Stetcher beat Zabisco to reclaim the title in Louisville, using the body scissors with armbar to force the pin at the 1 hour 40 minute mark. According to the Omaha Daily Bee, Stetcher was on the offensive virtually the entire time. He obtained several body scissor holds on Zabisco before the one that brought him victory, but the Polish wrestler broke them with apparent ease. Stetcher was in danger only once, when Zabisco attained a toe hold after breaking one the Nebraska wrestler had applied himself. The Kokomo Tribune spent half the article claiming that the promoter had trouble finding an opponent for a local lightweight Billy Trout and put him over as a future star. Meanwhile, the Hopskinville Kentuckian gave so few shits that they billed Stetcher as hailing from Alaska. Yeah, well, if you, if you got that kind of heat with the Hopskinville Kentuckian, then you, well, you've been fucking up, man. That is, that is some, some bad press indeed. Yeah, I, I love the occasional things like that where you could tell, like, somebody who didn't cover sports was told to put something together. They're like, I don't know. Where is he from? Nebraska? I think Alaska. That sounds good enough. Fuck this, fuck this job. Yeah, totally. Or they probably just didn't spell it. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the coverage, the next day, Farmer Burns offered to deposit $1,000 for a comeback match against any of the trust wrestlers, according to the Chicago Collier Eye, naming Zabisco, Pesic, and Roller as, quote, never anything better than second raters, and very poor ones at that. <laughs> now, now we have four-dimensional chess being played. We've got... The maybe the original Carney Godfather. Oh yeah, well, and you know, Farmer Burns coming out. I want to know what what the angle of Sando is. My my whole focus is how does Sando take? What does Sando yeah, think about well, this I mean, man? And, and that was a perfect. I don't know if if uh, if if Farmer Burns was opening a new gym or what, but he clearly needed some press and saw a great way to do it because that definitely made this in the papers. And also in the same paper was an article accusing the upcoming Zabisco Lewis rematch as being a big time betting scam to police the Polish community with bets, claiming that Stanislaw Zabisco worked his match with Gotch and blamed, of course, some well known Jews. Thank you for the needless anti Semitism, Ugh. 1919. That is a. a gosh. That is an awful article. I mean, I had something funny to say, but it just, like, lost the steam. Oh, yes. My people were, were behind everything. But Stetcher was back. He was champion, a legitimate draw, and had Jack Hurley's booking skills to back it all up. But on May 23rd, Earl Caddick, the real world champ, arrived in New York from France. The Army had wanted to keep him and make him an officer, possibly even placing him in President Wilson's personal guard. But Caddick had enough of it. Whatever patriotic ideals he had when he enlisted had been beaten out of him by the realities of war. Also during May, Lewis was part of Jack Dempsey's training camp, leading up to his title win over Jess Willard on the 4th of July. And it wasn't unusual to have wrestlers in boxing training camps in those days to help with conditioning and clinch work. Much like William Muldoon and Sullivan, Burns with Jack Johnson, Dempsey himself was a fine wrestler and had a toe in the business even after his boxing days were over, because boxing back in those days had a lot more clinch work, a little bit more, you know, uh, up against the ropes, a lot more leeway with the standing grappling than you see today. And yeah, you would definitely want a guy like that in your corner. I bet if you were a champion boxer and it was the same way, you'd want to have a Randy Couture or Dan Henderson helping with the coaching on that. Totally, yeah. I mean, and it was a simpler time, man. Fighters helping fighters. It wasn't too much more higher resolution than that. I'm sure there weren't too many, you know, fight training facilities and, and fight camps and fight gyms. So you got in where the getting was good, man. And I, I would probably imagine that there was a tremendous amount of benefit to the way that boxing was both, you know, the way that people fought at the time and the way that it was sort of the rules were enforced and the way that it played out. The crossover, like you said, of, of upper body, like Greco-style grappling would be tremendously helpful for these guys. Absolutely. And also, as, as we know, even in modern combat sports, if 
you can't wrestle, if you can't even like work a clinch game, even in boxing, and a guy ha- and you essentially have to carry a guy's weight, that can wear you out a lot more than throwing a thousand punches. Yeah, man, and, and one of the greatest weapons in boxing is the ability to grab your opponent once you've been rocked. So if you're working with really good wrestlers that are, and you can get out of their grip, this guy, your your boxing opponent isn't going to be able to keep a hold on you once you get him lit up. So that's probably had some real dividends. And after helping with that camp, Lewis had one of his best matches against Vladik Zabisco. Zabisco got the first pin of the two out of three affair in just under one hour and 37 minutes. The second fall saw a determined Lewis catch the pole in a series of headlocks leading to a pin after 48 minutes. And the third going to Lewis with another headlock takeover at 12 minutes, 56 seconds. And I have to wonder, with the return to two out of three falls with legitimate, well, not legitimate, but actual finishes instead of so many draws and decisions, it seemed to pop box office. It seemed to make the crowd more engaged, more willing to come back out. It's kind of the Coke classic, new Coke swap out where sales dip when you change things and they pop when you bring them back to the thing that everybody was used to. That's exactly right. It's like a, a season for everything, right? And and people had gotten so much of sort of the showbiz rigmarole when it was Sandow at the helm where Curly's much more of a traditionalist and comes from actual competition in boxing. So he's got more of that sort of definitive shoot finish presentation and the people are hungry for it because they had so much shenanigans for so long and what was nice with guys like sandow and curly being in charge is yeah there was some fine-tuning there was the experiment with more boxing style yeah. decision finishes but these were men who took the egos out of the equation they they were able to contract and make these deals so it was their decision they had the final word so you didn't have to contend with a bunch of egos that finally had to agree for some sort of weird goofball finish not because it sold tickets and made the audience happy but for the sake of box office and box office alone yeah one thing we know from modern pro wrestling is it is really hard when you try to appease everyone unilaterally in the locker room creatively financially or otherwise because everyone has their own self-interest at play and it really takes someone to be the leader that everyone will fall in under and to put the business first and that's what these guys have the leg up on because like you said they've taken that ego out of it and it's business baby on june 11 1919 ed lewis returned to omaha for the first time since the infamous draw with stetcher to beat jim londos in a hard-fought match speaking of omaha gene malady signed lewis and stetcher for the 4th of July, 1919, thus giving conclusion to their 1916 4th of July fiasco. So, same date, a few years later, you know, if you don't remember it from the last episode, it was a match where they wrestled to a boring draw when the sun went down, they busted out cars so the headlights could light the ring, they kept wrestling till it was just too late to keep wrestling, they refused to come back and finish it up the next morning, total shit show. I guess the stink was off of it enough to try it again under these new rules, the new setting, the new arrangements. The Omaha draw rematch that was going to draw. 5,000 ticket buyers filled the Omaha Auditorium, which rushed to put new seats in to seat that many people. <laughs> That's tight. Weirdly enough, the referee for the title match was none other than Earl Caddick, the legitimate lineage champion. So, which is a weird goddamn thing to do with obviously some setups for a future business, but what a weird spot to make your official return to the wrestling industry after all that. So he comes in wearing the stripes, probably just actually a button-up shirt with a bow tie, to be the, 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 the official in the ring with these two men. What in the name of Bret Hart's first booking in WCW do we have going on here? Way to waste the champ! Third banana referee stripes? Nay, I say, unless, you know, although you never dismiss a joke on his premise. So we'll see where, where Curly and, and this thing gets taken, man. The Omaha Bee reported that Billy Sandow wired their office about arranging for a police guard to keep him safe from fans who, quote, would do more than hiss and call him names on another appearance here. So Billy Sandow's wiring the press saying, we need to have police guard to keep Lewis safe from these vicious Omaha wrestling fans. It was not a coincidence that the Bee broke the story. Also, according to the Omaha Bee, the July 4th details of the day were 
3 p.m. start time. Doors at 1. Joe Stetcher weighing 215 and Lewis 235. The match was to be two a finish, best two out of three. Purse was 60% of gross, estimated at 22k. Winner take all. Special Entertainment Parker's Jazz Band and Telegraphic Returns direct from the ringside of the Willard Dempsey fight in Toledo. True or not, the gate in percentage was going to be a huge amount. And I love that, like, they were going to have, like, a telegraph sending the results from the bo the big boxing match so they could find out. It's like, you know, like, like the closest thing to being able to check your, your, your phone for, uh, you know, for, for the results of what's happening across town on some sort of sporting page. Yes, they probably were cooking the books over there, too, darling. And in the match, Stetcher showed off his post-war improvements and strength to shrug off most of Lewis's attacks, almost pinning the strangler repeatedly. At 1 hour and 47 minutes, he used the leg scissors with a wrist lock to pin Lewis. Stetcher pulled off the same finish in the second at the 14-minute mark, beating Lewis in two straight falls. Yes, that is pretty tremendous. Although, we do know that back in the day, a one-trick pony was better than a no-trick pony, and guys had an individual hold that they could really dominate most people with consistently and repeatedly, so that's not too far-fetched. Well, and it was good business, because if you're going to put over the hometown boy with his big return, the big return match, concluding a match that went to shit twice over the course of several years, you need to entertain. You need to give them something. You need to make yeah. sure you're not ripping them off when that many fucking people show up and pay good money to see it. So both guys knew to do the right thing. And again, under Curly, under Sandow, they knew it was more important to send the ticket buyer home happy than do whatever carny bullshit for their egos or for whatever side bets they placed. They saw the long vision of the business and how to re-energize a town. Yeah, they got the babyface's hold over for the finish. They they put the babyface over in the big blow-off, and they sent the people home happy, and that is how it is done, nerds. In the article, Lewis flopped two times by Stetcher. The Cedar Rapid Evening Gazette claimed that Lewis was on the defensive and had no chance to apply his headlock. The Omaha Daily Bee bragged about Stetcher's double victory as his baseball team also won two days later against the Shiler Puritans, heck of a baseball team name. The Hamburg reporter claimed some little interest was shown in the outcome of the wrestling match, but most locals assumed Lewis would win. And the Tadlich Omaha Tribune wrote something in German, and I don't know what it was. The Omaha Bee headline, Bee's nuts. <laughs> oh boy. But it was a big match that paid off in every regard, but nationally it was overshadowed by Jack Dempsey beating Jess Willard in Toledo for the heavyweight boxing championship, but only a little. People like Lewis, Zabisco, Stetcher, they were stars on par with Dempsey. It's just Dempsey's big moment kind of outshone this specific match. And Omaha was re-energized, business was booming, men like Lewis, Sandow, Curly, uh, Zabisco, everybody knew that business came first over their own bullshit and the side betting. So the business was getting hot. It was getting very hot. Box office was up. Attendance was up. Press was more favorable than what it used to be. And bigger things were on the horizon. Important things were on the horizon because this is as far as we're going to tell the story today. We are running short on time. But coming up next time, the plot is going to Thicken yet again when Stanislaw Zabisco returns from Europe and Sandow and Lewis meet a man named Toots Mont who will take things to another level. Oh, Toots. Chongo cannot wait. The Hippodrome Express, man, this is, this is so glorious to hear the true just creation of professional wrestling as we know it in real time. This is what happens when you combine the greatest promoter minds and the greatest interviewing talent they're working together they see the value in collaborating and they're playing the big game they're taking care of their they're taking care of their crowds their territories their audience and it's it's the start of something beautiful and you'll see these type of booms in every sport 
when the right people are in charge and the right talent wanders through the door. You'll see this again in the uh, in the NWA days with Lou Fez, and then you'll see it again when uh, you know young Vince McMahon Jr. takes over his father's business and lures away a star in the making uh, named Terry Bollea from Vern Gagne's dying AWA. You'll see this in sports like when Jordan came to the exactly. came to basketball, or when Dana White convinced his rich friends to buy the UFC and start pushing guys like Tito and Chuck Liddell. So there's just a right people at the right time in the right place, and when it happens, it's magic for everybody involved. Yes, and when Sando's involved, it's magic for everyone involved. And we'll find out more about that next time, but for now, make sure you follow us on, on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagram. I, I find so many fun old articles that I like to post, sometimes even weird things like, like well, the, looking up these matches, I found... I found an article about how they were trying to add hand grenade throwing to a track and field event because of World War One, and gosh darn it, that could have made the Olympics so much better. But we'll talk more about all this next time. Thank you so much for being here with us, not just this week, but every week. For Chago Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Until next time, people. Peace out, nerds. Cut print martini. Toot toots, Mont. <laughs>